In the name of the living and true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Weddings. Weddings come in all shapes and sizes. There are large weddings, small weddings, simple weddings, or sumptuous weddings. There was one wedding that I celebrated years ago, about nine years ago, that was especially unique as it was what you might call a study in contrasts. It was both large and small, simple and sumptuous. The couple wanted to have a very small, reverent, and liturgically rich ceremony. So we worked together and we planned a full-on solemn high mass for the historic chapel. There was this fragrant incense that filled the room, sanctus bells. They actually brought in a small choir to sing a cappella, the ordinary of the mass, uh, medieval style. The liturgy was like some kind of a beautiful ancient dream. The reception, on the other hand, was more like a party scene from a John Hughes movie. Uh, After the ceremony in the chapel, we went outside and there were a couple hundred people out on the parish lawn under a huge white tent with a DJ, piles of pizza, and a keg of beer. Two kegs of beer, actually. The reason I tell that story is for the keg of beer. That's the transition in the sermon. A keg of beer holds 15.5 gallons of beer. Now, at this wedding, there were two. There was a keg of stone and a keg of Budweiser. By the end of the night, the stone was completely empty. The Budweiser was still pretty much full uh, because usually it's the good stuff that goes first, right? Unlike at the wedding at Cana. So out of a total of about 30 gallons of beer, this entire wedding party consumed a little over half. Compare that to the wedding at Cana 2,000 years ago, where our Lord, we're told, transforms six stone jars of water into wine. The size of one of these stone jars at this wedding was, St. John tells us, somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons. So one of these jars was kind of like the equivalent of two kegs. It's after the booze that was already provided for the wedding runs out that Jesus transforms six of these enormous barrels into premium wine. This is not the schlock on the bottom shelf at Vaughn's that I buy. This is the stuff that my brother, who is an attorney in L.A., orders at a fancy restaurant when he goes out to celebrate winning a case. Our Lord delivers. I mean, his mother says they need wine uh, after a strange response that he gives her. She tells the servants to do whatever he says. And, you know, he could have done a case of wine. He could have maybe done one of these barrels. Jesus delivers, by my calculations, 60 to 70 cases of, that's 12 bottles in a case, of 97-point wine. I mean, this is the most over-the-top wedding gift ever. 
And he doesn't even sign a card with it to say that it's from him. It's given anonymously. The extravagance of this miraculous transformation of water to wine is absurd. The overabundance of the gift is ridiculous. It is beyond reason. And that is precisely the point. St. John, in the telling of this story of Jesus' first miracle, he wants to, among other things, highlight the reality of this event. That this is not a metaphor or an allegory. That this miraculous transformation of all this water into all this wine actually happened. And he includes many details, and, um, and St. John in his gospel only includes those things that he means to include. There's not a lot of fluff. And many details underscore this point. For instance, the stone jars are, well, stone. They're not clay. <clears throat> so they would have been used, and he tells us this, solely for purification ritual, meaning they would only ever be filled with water and nothing else. There's no chance of some residual wine left over in the bottom to somehow account for or explain away the miracle. The servants are the ones who fill up these jars. They are the ones that know the source of this substance, at least what begins as water. They know that it's pure water. They poured it in and filled these up to the brim. Now, Jesus instructs not the servants to taste, but the ruler of the feast. He tells the servants to take this water turned to wine and give some to the ruler of the feast. This is like the wedding coordinator or the head of the country club. So everyone else may have been half drunk, but not this guy. That's one of the other uh, ways of explaining it away. They were all hammered. They didn't know it was good wine, could have, could have just been water. They didn't know the difference. But the ruler of the feast, he was on the clock. He was the one working the party. He would have been stone cold sober. He has a taste, recognizes immediately how good this wine is, calls over the groom and congratulates him on saving the best for last. This miracle is done for its magnitude. It's done in a kind of discreet way. Everyone keeps right on partying, none the wiser, of where the extra wine has come from. But those servants, the disciples, and the mother of God witness this miraculous transformation of water into wine. Transformation. This is at the heart of the miracle. Jesus transforms this substance of plain water into rich wine, and he does so in abundance, overabundance. There is imagery in the Old Testament of the overabundance of wine. It is its own symbol in the scriptures of the arrival of the coming of the kingdom of God and the coming of the Messiah. Both the prophets Amos and Joel Speak of that day that is coming when the mountains will drip sweet wine. So this miracle is, in a manner of speaking, a fulfillment 
of this prophecy. The breaking in of God's kingdom through the coming Messiah has indeed arrived in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. But this miracle does not merely fulfill a prophecy. It also points to the manner in which the Messiah will save. Our Lord's transformation of the water into wine points to the overabundance of his life-giving grace that he has come to offer all his people through his death and resurrection. There is more than enough grace, a ridiculous amount of grace given to us in Christ to go around. Too much grace, an unreasonable amount of grace. St. John, in his telling of in his telling of this story, also makes it hard to miss the allusion to another miracle of transformation involving wine that also is connected to the coming of the Messiah and the way in which he transforms us by his grace. There are seven miracles or signs in the Gospel of John. Two of them involve food and drink. There's this one, the transformation of water to wine at the wedding in Cana. And then there is the one you all remember, the multiplication of the loaves and fishes, the feeding of the 5,000. The miraculous transformation, overabundant transformation of the wine and of the bread is an obvious prefiguring of the mystery of the Holy Eucharist by which our Lord transforms bread and wine into his very own flesh and blood. And he does so in abundance for the life of the world. You remember it's St. John alone who shares our Lord's words, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. St. John's gospel is filled with rich sacramental imagery. And as if to further underscore this point and connect the Eucharistic meal to our Lord's sacrifice on the cross by which we are saved, there are only two places in all of John's gospel where we encounter the mother of God. This is one of them at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus instructs her that his hour has not yet come. The only other time John speaks of the mother of God is at the foot of the cross, when our Lord's hour has come. They're almost bookends, if you will. What rich and profound symbolism connecting the mother of God, who is herself an icon of the church, with a marriage feast and the saving sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We, his bride, the church, continue to be united to Christ, the bridegroom, through the Eucharistic sacrifice, which prefigures the marriage supper of the Lamb, our salvation. This miracle is filled with abundant transformation. The transformation that we see at Cana, continues to this day in us. Imagine those parts of you that you wish you could change, that you wish would change, 
But no matter how hard you try, no matter how much effort you exert, you cannot on your own change. These are the places that our Lord Jesus Christ can and does transform. This transformation is, in point of fact, at the heart of the mystery of our salvation. This is what it means for us to be redeemed in Christ. We are, in a manner of speaking, the water. And by his death and resurrection, our Lord Jesus Christ calls us to be redeemed, to be transformed by the overabundance of his grace into this rich and wonderful wine, which is his divine life in us. St. John Chrysostom in the fourth century writes of this personal transformation. He says, at that time then, Jesus made water into wine. He's talking about the wedding. And both then and now, he does not cease to change our weak and unstable wills. For there are, yes, there are those who in nothing differ from water, so cold and weak and unsettled. He's making an analogy between human nature and this water as cold and weak and unsettled. But, he says, let us bring those, let us bring ourselves of such disposition to the Lord that he may change our wills to the quality of wine so that we be no longer washy but have body and be the cause of gladness in ourselves and others. The overabundant grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has the power to transform lives. But all of this is really prelude to the real point of this miracle or this sign. St. John calls them signs. We know what signs are. A sign exists to point to something beyond itself. When you go to the beach, you don't stop at the sign that points to the beach, pull over and have a picnic underneath the sign, No, you follow the sign on to your destination. What is it that this miracle is a sign of? What is it that it points to? It points directly to the revelation, the proclamation, the good news that Jesus is the Christos, the son of the living God. That's why this miracle of the wedding at Cana in Galilee is always read during the season of Epiphany, because it's a manifestation of the truth that Jesus is very God of very God, who alone has the power to transform us, to transform darkness to light and death to life. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for the gift of your Son and for all the ways in which you continue to pour out the abundance of your grace throughout your church and world. We do thank you for all of the sacraments of your church, in particular for the Holy Eucharist and the ways in which your flesh and blood in us transform us into the likeness of your Son. We offer before you this day all those places in our lives that we do not have the power to change or transform. We lift them up to you 
and pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit dwelling in us and through your crucified and risen Son, would transform those areas of our lives, that you would continue, Lord, to transform us into the people you have created us to be. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.